Hi, I'm Dave Holder, and you're listening to the Sports Coaching Podcast with Sam Holmshaw. Welcome to the uh, latest episode of the Sports Coaching Podcast with me, Sam Holmshaw. Hope everyone has continued to stay safe, well, and is uh, keeping keeping busy in this uh, pretty pretty difficult time for us all. Uh, I'd firstly just like to say thanks to everyone that's got in touch over the last week. Had some really really great support and and feedback off coaches out there so really get great to hear so please do carry on keeping in touch so on this episode episode five today i'm absolutely delighted to be joined by uh, dr dave alder senior lecturer of sports coaching at leeds beckett university dave how are you morning sam good thank you how are you getting on yeah i'm very good i'm uh, i'm keeping busy are you i am i'm in the middle of trying to convert my Garage into an office, so currently chopping fingers off and having to run to get plasters, but now all good. So Dave, as we said, you're the uh, you're senior lecturer of sports coaching at Leeds Beckett, so do you want to you tell us a bit about your role there and, and some of the stuff Leeds Beckett's doing on the sports coaching course? Yeah, so I've been uh, a senior lecturer at Beckett for the past six years, five years. Um, previous to that, I was at University of Bath, University of Edinburgh, teaching their sports psychology degrees. And then prior to that, I did a PhD at John Moore's, uh, where I did my undergrad as well. Um, in terms of my teaching at Beckett, the course was, as you know, was revalidated a year and a half ago. So we've yep. now got um, industry-specific modules that allow our students to essentially go out into the workplace and, and gain gainful employment immediately. So I mainly teach on performance analysis modules. Um, a little bit on coaching pedagogy modules and a little bit on the masters in terms of optimizing skill and expertise. Yeah, and enjoyable for you? Yeah, I love it. I love it. I think the, the biggest thing that this strange situation has shown me is that I do miss the interactions with the students, the day to day stuff. Um, it can be a pain, don't get me wrong. They can uh, infuriate the hell out of you, but yeah. at the same time, seeing them progress from. Um, first to third year obviously yourself seeing the, the development that you make both yeah academically but also as a person is, is is a brilliant and quite a privileged position to be in yeah yeah absolutely and dave as, as well as your role at, at leeds beckett as a senior lecturer you're also the youth development phase talent reporter for the fa which you've had since uh, since the new year am i right in thinking yeah yeah so yeah. um when I started at Beckett, I started as, as an academy coach at Bradford City as well. Yep. Um, so I was there for five and a half years, um, working with a range of different age groups. And over the last three years, headed up their performance analysis for the academy, for the under 18s and half season in the first team. Um, and then around Christmas time this year, a position came up with the FA that with me moving house, with me getting married, it, it just felt about right for me to, to move on. Yeah. Um, so the new role now is one that I'm, I was really getting my teeth into. It's just a shame that the season finished early. Yeah. So essentially, I'm, respons I'm responsible for um, identifying and working with players that are going to play for our national age groups from the age of under 15s to under 18s. Yeah. And so watching live games, writing reports, um, attending camps and matches with the, with, the, with the national squads, which it's a different role. I'm going to miss the interaction with the players. Yeah. But the, it's developing a different skill set from one that one that I've not really been using as a as a coach being on the ground. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, really interesting stuff. So 
you mentioned a bit about your role at Bradford there. Then. So that was as uh, as lead age group coach. Am I right in thinking? Yeah. So started off as the the lead under fourteens coach, yeah. um, and then essentially mainly due to to work commitments at Beck, it ended up dropping down to the thirteens because I couldn't commit to the extra training sessions. Yeah. So essentially, the role just consisted of um, designing, planning, leading uh, sessions two, three times a week, games on a Sunday, um, and then all the, the, the admin that comes along with, with working within an academy, so the, the dreaded PMA system, in which you've got to write reports on players, you've got to, yeah, it's a whole, 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 host of, whole host of admin that when you speak to any academy coach, they'll, they'll probably let you know it's the least favourite part of the job. Yeah. Um, one thing that, that aligned really nicely with the Beckett position as well was the amount of opportunities we managed to get for students across the degree. Yeah. Um, so we've had 12 students that have come on as interns within the performance analysis and strength conditioning departments. And quite a few of them have now gone on to full-time employment. So, for example, Charlie Mitchell. Was Charlie in your year, Tom? Uh, I think it was year above, wasn't it? Year above. So Charlie's now... Um, head of performance analysis for Paphos FC in Cyprus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah we've got Cal- Callum Goff is the head. He works as a full-time analyst for the PG Mall, so the guys that are responsible for the Premier League referees. Yeah. Um, Alex Vinyl down at uh, has just got a job down at Tottenham Hotspur. Was at Huddersfield. Um, Tom Corden down at Nottingham Forest. So it's a range of through Bradford, but also through the different opportunities the degree provides the students, it, it allows them to then go on to these, industri- these different industries. Yeah. So moving on to today's topic, what we're going to, uh, what we're going to discuss today links in with a lot of, uh, a lot of Dave's uh, research, uh, which is the topic of perceptual cognitive expertise, which if you've not heard of, I'm sure Dave will give us a, a good introduction in a second. But we're going to talk a bit about what we are, what are perceptual cognitive skills, we're going to talk about the effect these have uh, on performance for our athletes or for our players, and then we're going to uh, Dave's going to give us some tips on how to create uh, perceptual expertise within our athletes and players. So to start us off, Dave, I guess what are what are perceptual uh, cognitive skills then, or, or or where does this idea of perceptual cognitive expertise come in? Okay, so perceptual cognitive skills, probably worth prefacing this with there are three or four different schools of thought on, um, first of all, how you define them, how you train them, how you measure them. Um, I don't think we've got long enough to go into to each of the different, different approaches today. Yeah. Um, but from a, a real broad perspective, perceptual cognitive skills is an athlete's ability to interpret cues from the, from the environment to help them make a decision. Yeah. So processing um, important information from the sporting display to aid in your next decision. So main perceptual, perceptual cognitive skill that I've tended to, to focus on with my research is anticipation. So the ability to read what your opponent or, or your teammate in some, some situations is about to do. Yeah. So a lot of the traditional work focused on within racket sports, being able, because there's, there's such severe temporal constraints so that you Essentially, you have to move before ball racket contact. What information are you using to help aid those decisions? So essentially, if you can identify what your opponent's about to do, it allows you longer to respond. Yeah. Yeah. Is that the, the long and short of it? The, the different um, 
there's a range of different sort of approaches to it. It's the information processing approach would, would suggest that you almost act like a computer. So yeah. you, you read a cue, that then sinks in the brain with some form of action, you then complete the movement. Yeah. Other, um, other debates such as the dynamical system, ecological dynamics, or, or would go with a slightly different approach. Um, a lot of my work is focused more on the information processing type, mainly due to my supervisor for PhD. So Professor yeah. Mark Williams, and, and Dr. Paul Ford and Dr. Joe Corza were very much from that school of thought. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So do you want to just, I know you've, you've, you've briefly just gone into it there, but do you want to tell us a bit about your work into anticipation? Uh, so, so sort of the stuff you've explored there and what, and what you found. Yeah, so um, I'll probably start from a PhD and move on. Was the PhD essentially was looking at the impact of competition-like stress on perceptual cognitive skills, so mainly anxiety. So what, so what happens when, when players get anxious? How does that impact their perceptual cognitive skills? And what specifically is it that's being changed? So for example, one of the, one of the studies that we completed in badminton showed that when, when players are anxious, we were less able to anticipate opponents' actions accurately. Yeah. And that then, then when, the reason for that was that they changed what we call visual search behaviors for what yeah. so where they were looking to extract cues yeah that's been shown across the board in a range of different sports in that and even different environments such as military law enforcement surgery um aviation laparoscopic surgery that when people become anxious they tend to fixate or focus on things that might not provide relevant information yes so for example there's a piece of work by mark wilson and, and sam vine down at exeter and greg wood that examined when taking a penalty when taking a penalty in low anxiety conditions participants fixated into the spaces in the goal yeah when they were anxious they fixated on the goalkeeper yeah so first piece of work was examining well what first of all what is it that changes so we found that when specifically olympic level badminton players are anxious visual search behaviors changed yeah and then the, the big study was looking at well if we can produce training environments that, that mirror that level of anxiety, get them used to making decisions whilst they're anxious, whether there'd then be any transfer to the competition environment. Mm -hmm. yeah. Big study looked at, well, so, so it was pretty brutal for the players <laughs> in that they were, putting, they were putting highly anxious conditions every training session uh, for a sustained period of time. Yeah. The impact of that was initially visual search behaviors changed, decision-making dropped, but then by the end of the training processes, the visual search behavior stayed the same when compared to low anxiety and decision-making was maintained as well. And this yeah. also transferred into, into what we class as a field-based condition, so outside of the lab. Yeah. So that was managed for a PhD. The most recent stuff we've been looking at, so myself and, and Jamie Poulton and, and Dr. Dave Broadbent has been looking at, we know that in, within the sporting environment, there are a range of different stresses that, that impact athletes. So anxiety is one. Yeah. Most recently, we've done some work with the, the Badminton World Federation looking at the impact of what we're calling physiological load. So yeah. a, a fancy word for fatigue, for fatigue. So when players are tired, what happens to decision making? And is that underpinned by changing visual search? Yeah. We know that it is. So we've just completed a big project that looks at, well, if, again, if we train players decision making when they're tired, is there then a crossover into performance? And, and there is. Yeah. So that's the stuff that we've that we've had published over the last couple of years. Yeah. We've got a number of pieces that are under review, um, looking at that we know that anxiety anxiety exists in the performance environment. We know that 
physiological load exists, but all work today has examined these two in isolation. Yeah. Our latest work has been, you know, what happens when we combine them? Yeah. So what happens when we mentally fatigue them and get them physically tired? Yeah. And that's just about to be sent off to review. So, so keep an eye out for that, Sam. Fantastic. So essentially, I suppose in a broader picture, it, it's, 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 it's basically the uh, psychological effects on attentional control in, in, a, in, a, in a big capacity, uh, which, is, which, is, which is interesting to me because that's, that's a topic I did a lot of my dissertation work on. Uh, sort of looking at sort of the effect of injury on, 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 on the level of threat perception. So there'll be a lot of coaches out there that probably, maybe that haven't come from an academic background, that probably haven't really heard of this stuff before and haven't maybe given it a, a food for thought as such. So how important is it for us as coaches to sort of really begin to consider sort of this, this idea of perceptual cognitive skills? Uh, I think... I think it depending on the level that you're working at. I think looking yeah. at the academy level coaches, um, whether that be a good cap three level or all the way up to, to the national team, it's becoming more and more, more and more included and as as um, just as a given that yeah. there's a there's a place for there's a place for drills and other post practice. Yeah, um, would be one thing that I definitely say that sometimes there is a need to do unopposed re repetitive pattern type work. Yeah, but I think there is an appreciation that there's. There's constantly a decision to be made. Yeah. Um, a lot of the stuff that, that we worked on at Bradford, and they've got some, some fantastic coaches working there. So um, our new head of coach in Lewis, no, sorry, their new, so called our, their new head of coach in uh, Lewis Nightingale has come back from, from Everton, has revamped the curriculum. Um, and a lot of that is so game specific that it forces players to make decisions. Yeah. Whether, that, whether that's decisions around what an opponent's about to do, what they're about to do. Or it might even be a decision about a technique. So I've got, I'm, I've only got one option. I've got to plan. If I'm playing left back, I've got to play into my my left side of midfielder. But the, yeah. I've got a, a defender blocking my my passing lane. Yeah. Right. The decision now is what technique to use. Yeah. So it's not a tactical decision, but it's a technical decision. Yeah. And I think coaches are starting to to see the difference between those two. Yeah. The thing that was uh, a very common. And it's one of my bugbears that within within the game is you need to scan, you need to scan, scan, scan. But yeah. scan for what? The amount of plays that you see doing it just essentially just to tick a box for the tick a box for the coach. Yeah. If I if I've got um, if I've developed a high level enough perceptual cognitive um, toolkit that I can use auditory senses so I can hear where the defender is. Yeah. If I can feel where the defender is, why do I need to look at him? Yeah. If yeah. I am scanning, what am I scanning for? There's a massive difference between looking and seeing. Yeah. Everyone can look. So the amount of times that you see players check the shoulder, that old adage, they'll check the shoulder and then turn into the defender anyway. Yeah. So what was so the point in it? Yeah. yeah. So what's the sort, exactly. So what's the point? So, yeah. the, so, the, so the difference between scanning for scanning sake or actually identifying and more importantly interpreting the cues that they're seeing and that's where expertise comes in yeah anyone can anyone can look over the shoulder but it's that level of perceptual cognitive skills to then link together the perception and the action yeah so i know that if i'm receiving that i've got a defender on my right shoulder i'm perceiving the the pace of the ball what i've got on my left shoulder the surface where i'm on the pitch all these things to make an yeah. instant decision yeah Information processing approach would say that I think about each of those steps. Yeah. Whereas other sort of ecological dynamics and 
uh, constraints type approach might suggest that just becomes natural and it's more yeah. self-organization yeah yeah just just quickly on, on on just on those two before we move it on do you want to just give a, a sort of brief explanation of, of both of those approaches the ecological dynamics and the information processing um i'll, I'll give you the one together because it's, they are, it's essentially, and Mike Ashford's bringing out some quite cool work on this. That yeah, yeah, yeah. People, lots of people are saying lots of different, lots of different things, sorry, are saying the same thing with lots of different terminologies. Yeah. So Mike's bringing out a really cool piece of work that, that he's looking at developing a common framework for language. Um, so I'm not sure if that's, if that's come out yet, it's coming out soon. But yeah, essentially... I read it the other day, really good read, really good read. Yeah, so, yeah. so essentially it's, it's suggesting that... Um, it's perception and action that are linked and there's not necessarily a cognitive aspect all the time. Yeah. So for example, if I'm, if I'm walking up a flight of stairs, for example, I'm not, I'm not consciously thinking about what the height of the step is. Yeah. My body's self-organizing to, to allow me to, to make, to, to perceive the environment and then act accordingly. Yeah. Essentially. So it's removing that level of cognitive element that, and again, some people would argue that there's always a cognitive element. I'm not yeah. sure. So, um, that, so, for example, Dave Collins would suggest there's always a cognitive element. Cognitive yeah. element's always there. Yeah. Whereas other people, um, sort of Rick Shuttleworth, uh, Mark Upton, Ollie Logan would suggest that maybe, maybe it's more around self-organisation. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, so we've uh, spoke a bit about perceptual cognitive skills and, and, and spoke a bit about uh, the, the, the sort of how, how this affects performers or, or sorry, affects players in, in the resultant performance. So a lot of stuff in the literature, obviously, or, or the majority of the time, talks about this idea of experts versus non-experts. So experts are really good at using these, these, these perceptual cognitive skills. They, they use them really well. As non-experts, you, you tend to find that they don't necessarily have, they've not developed these skills as much and not so much attuned to the environment, should we say. So what's your, what's your opinion on that? And, and what's sort of the research you've done through, through uh, your PhD or through your interest? What, 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 what's your opinion on that? So I think that, um, sort of the background to a lot of the perceptual cognitive type stuff is probably best summarised in a piece of work with Mark Williams and, and the late Tom Riley from it was 2000. Yeah. They essentially identified that when you're comparing um, almost experts with true experts, so the very top end of the, of the sporting environment, sporting uh, landscape, that when it comes to physical attributes, they're matched up. When it comes to uh, biomechanical type stuff, they're matched up. Yeah. psychological stuff in terms of mental toughness um, or that sort of stuff we match up but it is the perceptual cognitive skills that, that differ between truly elite and almost elite yeah is that sort of the, the grounding of the work that, that i completed yeah what we what we tend to see is um in terms of less skilled or, or novice type participants um the work that i've done is focused around again around visual search behaviors and that they're less efficient at identifying essentially where to fixate their vision. Yeah. So experts know where, either know where key information is occurring from. Yeah. So for example, in, um, in football, for example, if I'm a goalkeeper about trying, attempting to anticipate a penalty kick, there yeah. is a, a bespoke visual search behaviours that experts tend to use. Yeah. So uh, Salzburg, I found Salzburg, identified that 
around football contact, uh, expert goalkeepers tend to fixate on the non-kicking foot because yeah. that provides the most information that allow them to, to interpret where the ball's about to go, whereas novices are less efficient and they're more erratic. Yeah. So they tend to use, and again, it, it differs across different tasks, but the main um, variables that we look at are number of fixations. So, uh, sorry, start again. Location of fixations, so where people are looking. Yeah. Duration of fixations, how long they're looking in those areas for, and then finally the number. And again, it's very much task-specific and very much sport-specific, but it's those yeah. three variables that tend to give you an idea of are they able to extract information from those key areas. Yeah. Yeah. So how much then does, does experience, playing experience, so you think about maybe at an elite level, you know, playing for a player might have played for 10, 20 plus years versus someone playing at sort of a semi-pro or amateur level. How much does the, the, the experience and, and the sort of, uh, if you like, quality of the experience affect the development of those skills? Yeah, so there's, um, so Paul Ford's brought out some work a couple of years ago looking at the, the practice history profiles of elite and sub-elite players within, within a football environment. Yeah. So looking at throughout their developmental pathways, what were the experiences that they, that they went through? Were they different? Were they similar? And there was actually a, quite a stark difference in terms of um, the amount of deliberate practice, the amount of games that, that the experts engaged in compared to the non-experts. Yeah. So I'd, I'd say from a, and again, the, the 10,000 hours gets banded around. Yeah. All left, right, and centre. So we'll stay well clear of that. Yeah. But it's <laughs> from, 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 forget the academic point, from, from my applied experience and having yeah. worked within, within academies for the last nine, 10 years. Yeah. Um, I think it, it depends on the age group that you're working with. Yeah. So we're, we're completing a bit of work with Bradford at the minute around um, essentially capturing decision-making demands and capturing uh, essentially the number and the type of decisions that players are forced to make in games and does this translate across the practice to training. Yeah. Um, and some of the really interesting focus group work that we've done has identified that the younger age groups, they, they want their players to be making lots of decisions. Yeah. So the, 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 there's no, essentially there's no right or wrong. There's, be free to make as many decisions as you want. Yeah. Where the older they get, so more towards the under-18s level, it's here are three options, choose the best one at the right time. Yeah. Yeah. But to be able to choose the best one at the right time, you're going to have to have experienced lots of them early yeah. in your development. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, there's, well. And again, within, within age groups, there's um, stuff around, there's a significant amount of work looking at the, the relative age effect from a physical point of view. Yeah, but there's very limited stuff looking at. Well, what's the impact from a cognitive point of view? Yeah, yeah. So one of my dissertation students, Josh Waddingham, looked at that this year in terms of is there a is there a what was there a, is there a relationship between relative age effects and perceptual cognitive skills within academy players? Yeah. yeah. Was there an, was there an impact to amount of training so training age and amount of training hours and perceptual cognitive skills? Yeah. And although he had a limited sample, he found some quite interesting stuff around that. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say for, I think the, the take-home for me would be the more the, get, more, the more training can look like the game, the better. Yeah. I know it's quite a, um, it's quite a, quite a simple message to be, to be saying, but not just from a physical point of view, but everything that comes along with it. Yeah. yeah. Your, um, 
if you're expecting players to make specific decisions in a game, they need to have been making those specific decisions in training. Yeah. So, yeah. for example, going back to my applied, my applied work at Bradford, we used to train on, um, on an AstroTurf. We used to have a third of an AstroTurf. Yeah. Um, and the, the red line that we played up to was just short of the halfway line. Yeah. We then used to play our home games on the same AstroTurf. Yeah. And we were fantastic up, and, up to that red line. Yeah. After that, we struggled because the players are like, oh, what's this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even the, the distances between, even it might not, going back to the, the different approaches, they might not be consciously processing it, but getting used to spaces between players. Yeah, yeah, getting yeah. Used to having to complete multiple sprints and then make a decision. Yeah. There's a whole lot of research around, so Stacey, Dr. Stacey Emmons at, at Beckett's exam work around uh, rugby league referees that, I can't remember the, the, the specifics, but the overall message was that after completing um, an extended sprint, the chance of making the next decision correct dropped massively. Yeah. So therefore, if you can't mirror that in training, then then, you, then you're not providing the, the optimum optimal transfer for games. Yeah. Yeah, and, and that's a common, you know, sort of going off what you said there, that's another common misconception that I think a lot of coaches, particularly at grassroots level, don't tend to think about you you've really got to have that same what you're doing in training really has to represent what you're going to take into that game on the match day basically what you know for other reasons as well but majority for all those reasons you you've said there it really does affect how your players go and make those decisions in the game especially when you think about i think tactical periodization if i'm right there that's done a lot of work around that as well talking about the similarity yes. of uh, situations yeah, so, so Mike, Mike Ashford and, and Jason T brought um, quite a novel piece of work out around that last, last yeah, year, for that, around, yeah, around yeah. tactical periodization. But I think in terms of real simple applied implications, getting players to work, for example, work within, work within the units that they're going to be playing within a game. Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm playing, um, playing centre-back and playing a 4-3-3 four, four, three, three and I'm playing alongside a centre-back, yeah. make sure that you, they're on the same team in training. Yeah, yeah. Because then implicitly you start to pick up the cues from each other. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, if you're playing against, if you're playing with a holding midfielder, get him to play in the same team as you because then you recognise his movements, you recognise where he's strong. Yeah, yeah. It begins to link to that idea of a shared affordances, doesn't it, within your team? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really interesting stuff. Okay, so on to, our, on to our last topic for discussion and some, some really interesting stuff so far, Dave. Uh, sort of beginning to sort of talk about these perceptual cognitive skills. So as coaches then, how do we begin to go about creating perceptual cognitive expertise in our performance? So I know you've, you've, you've briefly mentioned some points there about sort of recreating or, or similar situations, similar... Uh, scenarios, if you like, in training that will, would, would happen in the game on a Sunday. But how, how do we really begin to sort of create those, those expertise in our performers? Um, I think there's a range of different, different approaches that both the... Uh, so within, within football or within general sports, Sam? Yeah, just general, general, yeah. General. Okay, so I'll, I'll speak from, from my experience within football that um, the, the latest... Um, Qualification from the FA have done some really cool stuff around this. Um, so I, I finished my um, full youth award last year, yeah, um, and that's probably the 
the best learning experience I've had in terms of identifying ways to do that. Um, so it's simple things around um, every training set. So for example, the group that I worked with last year, we, we, we always used to split the pitch into um, four, four channels vertically, four channels horizontally. Yeah. So A, B, C, D, one, might be one, two, three, four. Yeah. So then every practice that we do aligns to a certain area on that pitch. So it means that players can then see that and it can transfer across onto, onto yeah. a game day in terms of them recognising the, the relative transfer across would be one. Yeah. So making sure that you use, so for example, um, if I'm doing, if I'm using a, a really basic type rondo, for example, so um, two on either end and then 4v4 in the middle with a floater. Yeah. Getting plays to work out, well, that, that could actually be your two centre-backs on one end, your, your nine and ten at the top end, and then your, your midfielders in between. Mm. And just getting to identify what that, what that means. Yeah. Um, having a real clear shared language was something that, that really helped, um, helps almost speed up the decision-making process for, for my players. Yeah. So, for example, one that, that we worked with, uh, I'm sure what I'm saying, at Bradford, we've got a shared language around... When a, say for example, a centre-back steps out to, to either press or to, to play out, or to drive out with the ball, yeah. a simple command of close the gates yeah. simply means that the other centre, the two full-backs come in alongside the centre-back. Yeah. So you close the gates behind him. Yeah. It's a real simple, punchy analogy yeah. that allows them to not, it doesn't take up too much attention and resource, but it allows them to actually focus around what it is they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. With that shared language, it then allows the more socially developed players to actually lead themselves and identify when and where to use it. Yeah, within the would team. Be one. Yeah. Uh, a, fur a further one, and probably a final one, would be around almost exaggerating the demands of the game within training. Yeah. Um, so, for example, if I've got a, um, a midfielder who is, um, is by far the strong, for example, thinking back to my, my, my time in my last group, certain midfielder was far too strong for the group. Yeah. He was um, technically and tactically miles ahead. So then to make sure we still pushed him, we, we constantly underloaded his team. Yeah. Constantly set two players to essentially man-mark him. Yeah. We set the opposition challenges that if you take the ball off this player and score, it's worth five. Yeah. So you're really stressing that player and you need to make sure that it's done in a way that the player understands why you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you do it in such a way that it's forcing them to make these these decisions in a in a temporary and spatially constrained way yeah. that the game then becomes easy yeah 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 and what's and I think in essentially what all, all, all sort of three examples that you gave there it's all representing scenarios or situations that those players are going to face in the game and I think that's that's such a such a key or, or such an important uh sort of takeaway message from, from this today uh, is that, you know, like, like I said, and, and, I've, and I've been guilty of it myself, Dave, doing something in training, I mean, you've seen some of my sessions before that just have nothing to do with what you're actually trying to achieve. And I think just, you know, especially from this idea of perceptual cognitive skills and beginning to get that expertise, it's, it's so important that everything you're doing is, is, is really representative of what's in the game. And I think I think it um, again. It comes down to, and I'm sure we've hammered it into you across the last four years, Sam. That if yeah. you can't plan what you're going to do unless you know why you're doing it and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. So it might be that 
you know what, this first practice today, I, I want to get some physical returns. Yeah. So I know that I've, I'm, I'm not that bothered about them making loads of decisions. I want them to, um, to really stress them, to get them physically tired and, sit and essentially see what happens to the technique. Yeah. So therefore, I don't really want them to make many decisions because I want them to be essentially blowing them and having to make and having to use a range of techniques. Yeah. Likewise, if I want them to focus, if they've not got these decision-making skills developed, you're not going to do it when they're absolutely flogged and absolutely knackered yeah. because they've not got the essential resources. Yeah. So it, it, all dep it might be that you, you want to build this, you want to work on the social side. Yeah. And if you work on the social side, you need to make sure that they're essentially that they're working together and your practice allows you to do that. Yeah. So it's all around essentially identifying what is it specifically you're trying to hit. Yeah. I know we spoke a lot about decision-making, conceptual cognitive skills, but what is it that you're specifically trying to hit? And it might not be that you hit the same thing for every player in your group. Mm. It might be that you have some players working towards to the challenges you set them are very, very physically demanding. Yeah. So it might be if you're working on a, I don't know, a small sided game and you're playing with, with wing backs, setting them specific challenges that forces them to, to develop physically. Yeah. It might be you have a centre midfielder that you're looking to try and develop his or her decision making when receiving these back to goal. Yeah. Whatever it is, you're really really creating bespoke sessions. And that's I think from my experience, the hardest thing for that is having the time to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um I think the academies are look quite fortunate that they've got quite a few full time staff. Yeah. That you're looking at cat twos and cat ones. If they're full-time staff, have got a bit more time to plan the sessions yeah. as opposed to a volunteer grassroots coach who um, might be done a, a day on a, I don't know, a day on a building, building yard and then on the way, on the way to, to deliver to an hour and a half session. Yeah, on the way, yeah. Straight from it, yeah. Yeah. And just a sort of final point. Uh, so, so you mentioned there maybe the practicality, uh, not practicality, sorry, the more of the timing. Is this sort of stuff that academies now are starting to think about it is you know thinking about the culture academies is are they now trying to implement some of this stuff to really increase that youth development if you like yeah i think the um it's easy to knock academies yeah it would be my first thing having having been on the ground for like i said quite a significant amount of time yeah there are some brilliant practice going on it's yeah. not just developing players, but developing young, young men and young women as well. Yeah, which is often, yeah, think, isn't it? Yeah, it's often, and, and I'm sure there, there is, I'm sure there is some bad practice going on. Yeah. Uh, and some practice that is more about developing the footballer to sell on as opposed to developing the, the person. Yeah. But the caveat to that is there is a significant amount of brilliant work that's going on. Yeah. It's easy, easy to be missed. Yeah. Um, so you just look at the, the different... I'm not sure. I'm not sure if you if you follow any any of the local academies on on Twitter, Sam. Yeah. Um, but so again, I use the example I know through Bradford. They they closed their academy for obviously due to the current environment a couple of months ago, um, and it would have been easy for them to essentially just essentially leave the kids and just stop. Yeah. yeah. But they've not. They've set weekly challenges um, that are based around learning new skills, teaching you teaching siblings new skills, developing. Um, there's one that I saw last week from an under 10 that had put together a video around his daily, daily routine. Yeah. Forget the football. That's developing brilliant young people. A person, yeah. People. Yeah. But in terms of, I'm waffling now, but in terms of the, um, <laughs> in terms of developing the decision-making type aspect, in terms of developing effective decision-makers, I think when you look at the, 
the blueprints that's that's been passed down from the FA in terms of how we play the sort of players that we that we're developing. Like you look at our under under 17s to under 21s, the players in that are absolutely frightening. Yeah. And it's because it's linking physical prowess with technical technical and tactical prowess. Yeah. We've always been as big and as strong as everybody else, but now we're 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 making better decisions and we're able to execute them better. Yeah, yeah. Based on that insight of research that's come in over the last yeah. ten plus years, we've been and you know coming into an academy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good stuff, Dave. Uh, so, yeah, that's uh, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks, uh, thanks a lot to you, Dave. Really, really interesting stuff to uh, to sit back and hear sort of your research and and talking about how this affects decision making. I think, sort of from my perspective, that's a topic that's really getting a lot more increased attention now within coaching, which is, which is really great to see because it's such an important skill. You know, we often forget that players are there to, you know, we've, we've, we've got to teach them these decision-making skills and really, really try and uh, really try to improve them. So yeah, yeah. Really interesting stuff to hear. Uh, so yeah, thanks for your time, Dave. Thanks to everyone that's listening. Dave, if, if anyone's got a question, can they drop you an email, get in touch? Yeah, of course can. Yeah. Um, so if you, if you, Put my hash, my uh, handle on Twitter, and then um, emails just on on my back on the Leeds Beckett website. Feel yeah. free to get in touch. Yeah, fantastic. All right. So again, thanks today. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>